Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, Quillette's Canadian editor. Readers of the Quillette website may be familiar with the name Brian Amridge. He is the California-based engineer who, until recently, worked in a senior capacity at Facebook. In 2018, he left the company following his authorship of a memo that called out Facebook for a lack of ideological diversity among its staff. In a recent article for Quillette, Mr. Amridge set out his reasons for joining Facebook in the first place and his reasons for leaving. He also gave readers an extraordinary behind-the-scenes look at how content moderation policies have evolved at that company, often in ways that restrict free speech. Following the publication of his article, Mr. Amridge spoke to me over the phone. Here are excerpts from that interview. Brian, could you tell listeners about the decision you made to join Facebook? So it was around May 2012. And, you know, I, I had really come to this perspective about the importance of communication technologies. You know, at the time I was I was on my own. I had sort of dropped out of college to focus on this startup, um, this small company that I had started actually out of high school. And but I had, I had been thinking sort of at a high level about what kinds of technologies I found the most important. And, and the, the perspective I came to was that when you look at history, the history of technology, uh, if you look at things like the printing press and the telephone and the Internet and email, it, I, what, what the thing that tied these together for me were that they were communication technologies that accelerated the velocity with which a person can get an idea out of their head and either into someone else's head uh, or in front of the whole world. When you had that inflection point in how quickly that could happen, everything changed. And so I really came to, to believe quite passionately in that perspective. And from that perspective, I began to see Facebook as one of these communication technologies. And in particular, it was this platform with which you know people with no power, no money, no connection to the media could sort of say like, hey, I exist and here are my ideas. And if they resonated the right way, uh, they had a chance to to go around the whole world and, and be in front of a lot of minds. And so, you know, that was my primary motivation for joining the company. One example that came to mind, I think, early on for me uh, was the Egyptian Revolution or the, the Arab Spring. It was an example where one person with, again, no no connection to the media, no money, like really, really nothing to give them such a platform was able to use Facebook in order to start what, you know, a mass protest against an authoritarian government. You know, I'm I've sort of in an amateurish sense studied philosophy for for many, many years now. And, you know, I, I have I'm an objectivist and, you know, people can, can go research what that means. But it's become a really important part of my life. And it's a big part of why I've conducted myself the way I have. And, and a lot of why I, you know, I'm happy as a person is because I've managed to connect these big 
ideas down to the small details of, of how I make decisions in my life. And, you know, those are ideas that are not terribly popular today. And part of what's really important to me is that the people who are working on communicating those kinds of philosophical ideas, many of which are, are my friends, um, have a platform in order to do it. To the extent that you were motivated to go to Facebook to try and help ordinary people share their message with the world, it sounds like there wouldn't have been any political friction between you and the other people you work with, correct? No, uh, not at all. I mean, it was it was really just a non-issue at the time that I joined the company. I mean, Facebook very much so was explicitly, both externally and internally, on the side of free expression, on the side of, you know, the solution to bad speech is more speech, that, you know, our job is to be this transparent container and to give people access to all of the ideas and, and made the best win. Uh, that was very much so the way the company thought about it internally and talked about it, I think, to, to a great degree externally as well. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of how maybe policies changed at Facebook, there is a larger trend here. Twitter also, when it started out, its, its founder called it in early days something like the free speech wing of the free speech party or something like that. And, and Twitter has migrated a little bit toward more content control. Is that analogous to something that you observed at Facebook? Yeah, Twitter and Facebook have both tracked each other pretty closely, actually, in their approaches to these issues. And, you know, I think Facebook is a little bit ahead of the <laughs> ahead of the bad curve, if you ask me, but they're a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of ramping up how how much content moderation they do. And but they're really they're moving philosophically in, in exactly the same direction. Both of those social media outlets are run by the same founders and group of people who started them, is it that the philosophy of those people has changed? You know, the, the way Mark Zuckerberg will talk about this is as as Facebook has grown and its role in the world has, has just become more and more important, he's seen more of how the product impacts people and society generally. And so the sheer magnitude of that impact has made him you know, the way he would articulate it is that it's made him think a little bit more deeply and, and in particular respond to some of the things that have happened on the platform in a way that's evolved his position on these issues. So he might have been, you know, I don't think he would have ever described himself as a free speech absolutist, but he was definitely very strongly on the side of, of airing toward free expression. And I don't, he's not, he's definitely not, not so much on that side anymore. And I think for him, he thinks of that as a maturing perspective on what it means to operate Facebook responsibly. You know, I can't say I, I can't speak as with as much confidence about Jack Dorsey in the case of, of Twitter. But, I, you know, I, my my impression is that it's very much so the same the same situation, which is like, you know, in, they, they think of it as this ideal to, to, to err on the side of free speech. But then they the way they think of it is as in practice you know there's a cesspool of ideas that can really move around the world if you if you are a free speech absolutist and if you if you given the way these platforms operate and that they have a responsibility to to clean up after that and i understand that perspective because you know the way these platforms are built that is what happens and we all kind of see that to some degree that like when you particularly on facebook which has a much more aggressive model of ranking content by engagement. When you rank content by engagement, the kinds of ideas that are going to naturally rise to, top, to the top are going to be, to some degree, fake. They're going to be sensational. They're going to be tribalistic. 
because that stuff is more engaging than than what's true. And so that's a real problem to be dealt with. And, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on like how you actually deal with that. And, and that actually gets into to some of what I'm working on now these days. That's the problem that they're up against. And that's the that's, I think, the problem that's caused them to supposedly mature their perspective on, on how to deal with speech. When you say stuff that you're working on now, are you working with an existing social media network or creating your own? I'm not going to say too much about this, um, but I am starting a new company. Uh, it's it's and it's related to to some of the problems that we're we're talking about today, though it's it's quite different, I think, than than anyone might dissipate. Okay, so it's not going to be like Facebook spelled P H A C E B O. No, definitely Fair enough. not. I I have been to Menlo Park, the Facebook campus in California, to cover an unrelated story a couple of years ago on on web privacy. And I was struck by how beautiful it was, but it also was, as as stereotype would suggest, you know, there was a bike shop and there was a lot of progressive uh, bumper stickers and posters. And it strikes me that just as you describe in your article, there is something of a progressive monoculture there, which maybe you might expect because the good schools are churning out a lot of kids with progressive views. It sounds like your views are out of sync with that. Could you tell me a little bit about when that started to intrude into your professional engagement with other people? Yeah, the, the narrative that I've, I've sort of come to understand on this, and, and for what it's worth, I do want to say in advance, like the history of how these policies and the culture evolved is, is obviously an incredibly complicated thing for such a large company. And all I can tell you is sort of from my own from my own experience in that company, how it shifted. So the, the timeline for all of this depends on, on where you are in the company and, and who you who you work with and things like that. For me, the company was pretty apolitical as far as I could see, probably until you know around 2015. And the 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 key the key aspect that I think made it more political was this combination of how culturally everybody at Facebook, you're encouraged to bring your authentic self to work. That was the, the phrase that everybody used internally. And what that's supposed to mean is like, you know, there's no sort of work self and personal self that you really just could be your, your full self uh, at work. And that because we're building a, a social platform, we need to figure out how to not only deal with that, but that we benefit from being closer as teams, closer as a company, more real with each other. We could actually have more significant conversations and make more significant progress building social tools as a result of this. When you take that and then you combine that with an increasingly political culture where uh, you know people are, are more polarized than they had ever been before, particularly around the, the 2016 US presidential election, what ends up happening is that people are bringing those issues that they've become so passionate about outside of work to work. Those become the topics of conversation. They become, you know, the kinds of social issues that people are concerned about when they're when they're making all these posters that they freely put up on on the walls in Facebook's campus. And so the combination of those two things, taking into account just the the sheer demographics of the company, which, like you said, is it's overwhelmingly by default these these sort of progressive types who who are you know Silicon Valley liberals. You know, a lot of them are coming from from Berkeley and Stanford and Yale and so on. And so, you know, the, the combination of those things just meant that people felt 
incredibly free to talk about their political views on what to a lot of progressives they consider like uncontroversial stances. So like Black Lives Matter, for example, you know, that was that was something that within the company, it was almost an assumed position to say that we support that movement. I don't consider myself a conservative or a liberal. Like I said, I'm an objectivist, so my political views are a little bit more complicated. But, you know, that's that's a movement, for example, that I, I don't support. If I could interrupt, so listeners don't get the wrong idea. Presumably, you agree with treating people humanely. Yeah, I mean... You know, to the extent that this is about racism, like I, I, I abhor racism as much as anyone possibly could. But the particular organization, Black Lives Matter, like that's a much more complicated thing than just supporting, you know, efforts for racial equality. But that nuance was, you know, completely lost in the in the culture inside Facebook. It was just assumed that that was it was okay to to advocate for those kinds of organizations and and their causes freely inside the company. And you know what happened to the folks who who disagreed with that really reinforced that monocultural experience. In conversations, were people surprised that you didn't sign on to 100% of the positions that they took for granted? Oh yeah, I mean it was you know that there were people were definitely surprised is an understatement. Uh, I mean, there were certain people who simply didn't want to have that conversation with me as soon as they realized that I had a more nuanced perspective uh, on those issues, which is really shocking uh, because, again, Facebook is this they have some of the most talented people in the world. there, like unbelievably thoughtful, intellectual people. But, you know, if if I were to say something that was a little bit more nuanced, like, yeah, I mean, I support ideologically uh, what, you know, racial equality. But I have I have issues with the organization itself. Like people would just stop that conversation. They didn't want to be a part of it. They didn't. They were afraid. Um, they were afraid to be associated with even having that conversation. And so that was it. Was just really shocking to see the extent to which there was almost like a 180 degree turn in the way people had conversations with me once they realized that I, I wasn't just in agreement with on all of these issues. Facebook is used by all sorts of people, including conservatives. Was there a climate that you observed on Facebook where, to a certain extent, Facebook staff had contempt for a lot of the people who were using Facebook? You know, that's an interesting question. I I don't think I would describe it as contempt for people who are using Facebook. Honestly, like the, the way the way I observed it was they really they really just weren't even aware that there were people who legitimately and earnestly and in an intellectually honest way held these held views that were more nuanced on some of these social and political issues like they literally didn't know that there were people who who had issues with the black lives matter movement but wait a second who weren't but, but, racist i see so so they knew of the existence of trump voters for instance i'm not saying you voted for trump or didn't vote for trump but they knew of the existence of this large constituency, but they, they assumed that that constituency would manifest itself as sort of someone who didn't look like you or have your professional credentials. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they were dealing, in a sense, with a caricature of of the people who would who would hold those positions. Um, and in, in large part, you know, that, that's in large part, they, they simply were not even aware that there were reasonable, thoughtful people who thought differently about these issues. So it wasn't that they were just dismissive of of the issues. They they just they they truly were not even aware that it, it was possible to reasonably disagree. In the same way that sometimes 
private school students are assigned to do community service at public schools and that sort of thing. Can you envisage any sort of of way that people who go to elite schools, who work at places like Facebook, could be systematically exposed to a broader swath of the American population? I mean, it's. I, I think with something like that, it would. It has to come from the person. You know, it's got to come from a place of realizing that the the way to really understand the world and to develop a a fully informed perspective, first-handed perspective. Um, is to understand sort of both sides of an issue, to really deeply understand not the straw man version, but the strong man version of of both sides of issues. And and when you come from it from that sort of, you know, I, I describe that as an epistemological perspective it's a, of, of how, how you actually develop ideas, then I think people become interested uh, in doing things like that and going to meet people who really, really disagree with them and learning about why. But I don't think you can force it on people. You know, I don't think you could take, you know, the, <laughs> the a class of undergraduates from Yale and just bring them to the to somewhere rural uh, in the United States and, and have them learn a lot. You know, I think a lot of the time that would again it would result it result in that sort of caricature more than it would. I think a really rigorous exploration of it would probably make for a really terrible reality show. Is, is what it would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it would. I'm not sure if your tenure at Facebook overlapped with the infamous James Damore Google memo. It, it did. It did. I'm guessing that Facebook also has gender disparities in, in the engineers who work there. What was the attitude toward the gender disparity among the engineering workforce at Facebook? There was, it, was, it was kind of interesting. Because on one hand, there was what I would describe as an arrogant assumption that we would not handle that so poorly, <laughs> like as a company, without really any particular reason why. There was just an assumption that like we would have handled that better and it wouldn't have become the disaster that it was for Google. So that was on one hand. But on the other hand, you know, most people thought what James was trying to do was deplorable. And I don't agree. Most, most people thought pointing out these things was either wrong, you know, from a scientific perspective or that the motivation for doing so was was dubious. But you wrote your own memo. It didn't get as much attention as the James Moore memo, and it was on a different subject. It did make the front page of the New York Times. Could you describe what you put in that memo? Sure. The story here is basically that around around the time that I started noticing all of these progressive posters around campus or, you know, these Q&A. We have this weekly Q&A with Mark Zuckerberg where, where everybody can sort of ask questions. And some of the questions were just becoming, you know, ridiculously politicized. You know, people asking like, you know, Peter Thiel is associated with Donald Trump or, or supports him. Why are we, and he's on our board, board of directors at Facebook, like, why are we okay with this? Like these ridiculous questions. And, you know, in that culture, when I started when I started asking questions, particularly about our content policies, like the policies that govern um, what's allowed and what's not allowed on Facebook, uh, I got all you know an, an unbelievable amount of pushback. You know, I was described as a hate monger by more than one colleague. Um, you know, people were writing feedback to my my management chain about how I should be investigated by HR or fired for asking these kinds of questions and for going against um, for having a you know, really different perspective on how we ought to moderate content. And so, you know, for me, 
it became this issue where I, I realized I couldn't even talk about these strategically important questions for the company without, you know, my own character being attacked or, you know, obviously my, my career being potentially derailed. To be clear, these are issues that went to your job function. Yeah, that, that's, that's correct. You know, so I was, I was leading a product team within groups and, and, you know, this, these were issues that we were dealing with every day of like, you know, how do we, how are we going to structure groups so that we can, people, people can have conversations constructively? Like, how do you actually, like, what are the norms associated with doing that? And, you know, in that respect, the content policy, if it's going in this direction where, well, you know, you, you can't talk about things that are going to offend people, you, you can't do that. Like, uh, we couldn't pursue our mission of helping people, you know, have constructive conversations you know, with a content policy like that. So it did become, to some extent, part of my job. What happened was I started hearing these stories from all over the company of people who, you know, I had started writing about these issues a little bit. And, and even though I was getting attacked by many, many people for being a hate monger or a transphobe or a bigot or, or so on, you know, I started getting hundreds of private messages from people telling me, you know, I would never say this publicly, but I agree with you. And thank you for saying something. It became almost an emergency in a sense of like, this is a really unhealthy culture where everybody thinks that everyone's in, you know, in line with these issues, but there are hundreds and hundreds of people who are actually just afraid. And they're strategically important issues for the company. We have to get them right if we're going to succeed. You know, that's why I wrote the memo and it was called We Have a Problem with Political Diversity. And it basically just outlines this experience of, of how they claim to be, you know, welcoming to all perspectives. But in truth, if you, you start talking about issues that are, you know, related to, to social justice or diversity or inclusion or any of those sort of progressive causes, you know, you just get shut down. You know, we actually, we have a content policy that's taking explicit positions on what's okay to talk about and what's not okay to talk about. And if we get that wrong, then we're going to jeopardize like our the platform's ability for people to to use it to promote ideas and to have real discussions. That's why I wrote it and it it had quite an interesting response. One of the most interesting parts of your article was when you described the actual nuts and bolts of how content moderation takes place in Facebook, and it was quite demystifying. Could you briefly explain how comments on Facebook get either deleted or judged? The way it works today is that particularly when it comes to hate speech policies, policies that prohibit what are defined as attacks on protected characteristics like race or religion uh, or sexual orientation. What happens is when, when content is reported by someone on, for one of those issues, for being hate speech, there's a team of about, you know, I think today it's about 8,000 people, though I know they're growing it to be 15,000, content moderators. And you know, these are people who, their job is basically to process all of these reports of, of content policy violations. And, you know, these, again, these are, these are people who are not full-time employees. They're often contractors. They're often staffed in other countries in, in what we could most accurately describe as like a call center. So these are basically call center employees in another country employed by, you know, another company that Facebook is working with. They're, you know, there's a little bit of training that they're exposed to about what Facebook's policies are. But it's not nearly as coherent as you 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 might hope it, hope it is. Uh, in, in fact, Facebook's policies are so complicated and the implementations of them are so uh, incoherent that there are you know the rules are spread out across 
almost 1500 pages um, of documents and spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations that these call center employees effectively have to make sense of. And, you know, just a reminder, you know, when I talk about their call center employees in in other countries, they often don't speak English as their as their first language. And these documents are almost always written in English. So not only are there 1500 pages uh, spread out all over the place uh, of, of these documents, but they're using Google Translate to understand them. And then take take all of that context, they have eight to 10 seconds to make a decision on whether a reported post is okay or not. You know, it's, it's not terribly surprising in that context that the performance and the, the, the sort of the consistency and the accuracy of Facebook's moderation, content moderation, is not very good. They get a lot wrong. Silicon Valley has this wonderful quality. They A lot of the people think they can solve every problem with technology. Sometimes there's a techno-utopianism. And one way that manifested itself at Facebook, it sounds like, is that there was a belief that machine learning or more generally artificial intelligence could cure the problem of moderation because you could teach a computer to identify something that's hateful. But you make the argument that's impossible because it's essentially a, a political determination. Yeah, I mean, that, that's essentially right. You know, there there's this ambition. And again, I think it's actually very admirable. It's helped Facebook in many ways. But there's this ambition that any hard problem can be iterated on, broken down uh, and, and solved by the company. Facebook has an unbelievable confidence internally of its ability to tackle really hard problems that way. And to their credit, like they've succeeded at many of them. But this isn't that kind of problem. This isn't the kind of problem that you're going to be able to break down and, and train a, even you know, the best artificial intelligence systems to be able to do for you. Because again, you know, the, the, the state of artificial intelligence, sort of another topic, but the state of artificial intelligence is, is a lot less advanced than I think most people realize. Like the kinds of things that artificial intelligence are particularly good at are, are in recognizing cases that are very clear and easy for humans to distinguish between. So if we're talking about, you know, real human beings are having significant issues consistently deciding what content is acceptable and not because these policies are so vague, they're laid out in such a sprawling way, they're they're kind of incoherent and inconsistent and contradictory with each other. If that's the state that humans are having trouble dealing with, it's going to be even worse for, for artificial intelligence. Like, you know, artificial intelligence requires really clear cut definitions and very consistent data sets where right and wrong is, is, is demonstrated to the system for it to be able to learn how to distinguish between the cases. So this is just, you know, as far as machine learning goes, like this is basically the worst case scenario you could imagine. Facebook is to, aware of that. They're not really trying to build, you know, I mean, to, they're not really betting on their ability to build machine learning systems in order to, to, to make this better. That's why they've doubled uh, the number of content moderators that they're employing, because, because they, they know that the machine learning stuff is just not going to be there for this. But there's an even larger issue than that, which is like, it, it's not like if you just clean up the 1500 pages of documents and make the rules a little bit simpler that this will suddenly become a problem that's more tractable and that they can become more reliable at implementing. And that, you know, this again comes from a a more philosophical perspective that when you have something like a hate speech policy where the very definition of hate speech is something that's really hard to 
pinned down precisely. It's very hard to differentiate from what someone's subjectively offended by. When you have a definition like that, you know, from an epistemological perspective, I'd say it's an invalid concept. It's not it's not differentiated from its nearest neighbors enough to to be a valid concept on its own. And so there's a really pretty deep philosophical reason to say that, like, you know, the technology is irrelevant here. Like the very concept of hate speech is not something that can be dealt with in a fair, reliable, consistent way ever. Despite all your critiques of social media and Facebook in particular, you oppose government regulation of this sector. And why is that? You know, it, it comes down to what the role of government is. You know, as, as important as I think these issues are for Facebook as a company, for us as people using Facebook, you know, it doesn't give a government the right to tell Facebook, which is a private company, how to operate its platform, which is its property. You know, and, and that comes from a deeper perspective on what the role of government is. And you know, there's a lot to say about that, but you know, I, I think the, the proper moral role of a government is to help protect people's individual rights. And I don't think that regardless of how important Facebook has become to people, I don't think people have a right to use it. You know, it's not something that people are entitled to have, regardless of how, you know, how much they want it. You know, I think it's important to be principled about what a government can and can't do. You know, very quickly, the, the bad will be defined in a way unbelievably destructive toward your ability to live life as you see fit. Brian Amridge, thank you so much for talking to Quillette. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.